Recently, the New York Times devoted a whole column to a familiar dynamic called the arrival fallacy. The article said this, you finally did it. You got the promotion, secured the raise, finished the project, or leveled up in your career. It's a wonderful feeling of accomplishment. But then you come down from the high and reality starts to sink in. Where do you go from here? You've experienced the arrival fallacy. The illusion that once we make it, once we attain our goal, we will reach lasting happiness. But it's just nowhere near as large or permanent as envisioned. Psychologist Dr. Ben Shahar said arrival fallacy is the reason some Hollywood stars with mental health issues and substance abuse issues develop later in life. These individuals start out unhappy, but they, they say to themselves, it's okay because when I make it, then I'll be happy. But then they make it. And while they may feel briefly fulfilled, the feeling doesn't last. This time, they're unhappy, but more than that, they're unhappy without hope. Because before they lived under the illusion, well, the false hope that once they make it, then they'll be happy. The obvious problem is that achievement doesn't always equal happiness, especially over the long term. Now, this doesn't mean that there's something inherently wrong with an American dream about hard work and, and achievement, but when that's preeminent, then there's problems. We push our children to become captains of the soccer squad or student body president because we want them to be successful and happy. And then you find out when they're in their 30s, fresh off a big achievement, so deeply unhappy, they find themselves in a parking lot in their vehicle, weeping because they're so unhappy. Inherently, they feel like there's something broken within them. Why is peace so elusive to people? I think the answer is found in the Advent. Advent speaks to the coming of Jesus. And of course, his first coming was what we celebrate during Christmas. And each week during this Advent season, we've highlighted a benefit to Jesus in our lives with love and, and hope and joy and now peace. This is our last week of Advent. What is it? Peace is the tranquility that comes from being right with God. Now, we know that many religious systems uh, perpetuate an unsettled or unknowable kind of relationship with God. This is even within the Christian stream because it seems I will really never know whether I was good enough to get to heaven until the end because God might pull the rug out from under me if I really mess up. Again, this is even within Christian traditions. And so people are unsettled and feel as if they cannot do enough. And so peace is unknowable because the religious system makes it impossible to know whether you're really right with God or not. Now, peace is not erasing the past. 
When we have peace, we understand that as recipients of Christ and his work, we can now enjoy all that that entails in our relationship with him, which obviously includes forgiveness. And the pithy way to say it is that there is no peace without the prince. Peace is the relationship of mind and heart toward the objective work of Christ on the cross. So it's not just all subjective. We have this relationship towards the objective work of Christ, and that has a subjective impact upon me as a person. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we are declared justified, made right before God. Why? Because we're part of a denomination? No, because of Jesus Christ. So when we, by faith, trust Christ, we have peace with God. And many believers fall within the trap of thinking they can lose this declared righteousness. And some might hear a kind of whispering in their ear, you can't be a Christian when you thought those thoughts. You can't be a Christian when you do those certain sins. We've said it a hundred thousand times here that sin as a Christian hinders our fellowship with God, but it never severs our relationship with God. Peace is clearly a benefit that comes from Christ. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And so we are to let peace do its work in us. Now, from this passage, we learn that peace is not something that we arrive at on our own. It's not something that we have to, you know, contrive up on our own. It's a benefit we enjoy because of Christ. Notice, the peace is what? Of Christ, right? It's not peace we make. It's not peace we earn. It's given to us. Before he died, this is what Christ said to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So the peace of Christ is unique from any other kind of peace available to humankind. You know, it's not just absence of conflict. It's much more. It's something far deeper, long-lasting, and effective than any other kind of peace. And how sad is it that many who are Christians, or at least call themselves Christians, live without peace in their lives. Maybe it's because the kids didn't turn out the way you wanted. Maybe it's because you're not at your job the way you want. Maybe it's because your marriage is not where you want it. But peace seems to elude you. Why is this peace so unique to the Christian? Let's look at the first fact. Reconciliation with God brings peace of mind and heart that is necessary for the Christian to thrive. Listen to Ephesians. 
Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand firm. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the steadiness given by the gospel of peace. And he says, because of this, stand. All right? So I don't want you to, to lose your peace. You're able to absorb the things that go on in life. You're able to stand. One of the primary pieces of, an, of equipment for a Roman soldier was his shoes or his boots. They were called a hobnail boot. It would be thick leather that would have like nails attached at the bottom. Because if you're in a conflict, particularly if it's mud that you're going through, it would help you to keep, your, uh, uh, keep you standing. What's it like when we have a little pebble in our shoe or we have a cut or even a toe is sore? Like it hampers your whole body. Well, can you imagine getting it bloodied, getting it really severely injured? Imagine even worse, being on your back in a battle, right? So standing is important if you're going to have any kind of victory in a battle. So we need to be prepared for life by having what he calls this, these shoes of peace that the gospel brings. What does that mean? Well, Peace is secured by the gospel, and it's one of the necessary com components in thriving in life. Now, what this means is, is that what was it like before we were at peace? Well, this is a, a theological notion that many people do not like, especially the modern mind today, because they like to think of themselves as, you know, not being in any position where they're against God, but the Bible talks about the reality of people being hostile to God before they come to Christ, right? Before we knew Christ, we're considered by God to be hostile to him. Again, hard pill to swallow because we see ourselves as reasonable and fair. And hostility doesn't seem to be in our nature. Yet hostility is exactly as God describes the person in the unbelieving state. I mean, what else can you call a person who does not submit to God's law, does not submit to God's plan for redemption, and withholds belief and submission from his or her creator? Listen to how the Bible describes it. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, or Colossians. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what needs to happen? We have to mend our feet with the gospel of peace. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we've been justified, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 7 says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. I'm not a therapist, 
But it sure seems like a lot of people don't have peace. And it seems like the Bible says the answer is Christ, guarding our hearts and minds. All the counseling in the world, and I don't care if you pay 150 bucks an hour, is only as good as it makes a beeline for Christ, being the one who provides peace. Every time a lie is whispered to you about your standing with God, you have to remind yourself of the source of your peace. And it has to do with Christ, what he has done for you, and what he's continuing to do for you to preserve you, to continuing to maintain your relationship with God. Only Christ can deliver that kind of peace. So, clearly, Christ is the source. There's another aspect of this peace that is unique, and that is unity is expressed with other believers as a result of this peace. We finished the book of Acts um, not too long ago. How would you like to go through that book again? <laughs> Only took four years, right? I loved it. It was a lot of fun, but that book and other books we read in the New Testament clearly communicate a theme that there was tremendous hatred between Jews and Gentiles. This was on multiple levels. It was on a religious level, it was on a cultural level, and it was on a racial level. Read any historian about the problems or commentator about this and they will make note of these kinds of issues. But the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 addresses that problem with two themes. The first one he writes about is that the two groups are united in Christ. The second, we're told that these two groups are reconciled to God, which is the basis of being united in Christ as one church. So God is inviting us to a message and a life of reconciliation. Would you not agree with me that it is sorely needed today? I mean, the keenest minds and the most powerful leaders in the world continue to go to war with one another. The United Nations continues to struggle to bring peace. Labor unions fight with companies from the coal mines of West Virginia to the auto factories in Detroit to the shipyards on the California coast. Republicans and Democrats clash over the solutions to our country and having a controlling ideology within our culture. There is constant Strife, homes split apart, divorces escalate. There is racial division within our culture. Yes, some of it is trumped up, but when you talk to your black brothers and sisters, you know that there is much unrest and racial divide. And then to boot, religious factions continue to cause strife within our culture. What can you do with all this? 
I'm not a member of the United Nations. I don't know. Don't hold political office. But I do know to bring all of these things together, a people that are so different, Christ is the only answer. He's the only answer to where people can not just cohabitate, but truly have peace. And where's the place that's supposed to happen? It's supposed to be the church. The church is the model of this kind of unified peace because of of the centrality of Christ. Now, I know that there's maybe limitations in the educational field, political field, on the job to speak of Christ, but the church is to be the model, is to show the rest of the culture, this is what unity looks like. And to the degree that people look to Christ in the church, they'll be unified. To the degree that people in the church insist on racial and political ideology and other secondary issues is going to be the degree that the church will experience division. In Christ, Paul wanted there to be Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but they are Christians first. And today it's the same. We're in Christ. Christ is the one that unites us. This doesn't mean we have to deny our race. It doesn't mean we have to deny our culture. It does mean, though, that within the body of Christ, these things are subservient to Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All these distinctions take a back seat to Christ. The church is to be the model of that, right? I mean, I realize we're in a larger culture, and some cannot hear that message. But what I can do as a Christian living within a secular culture is to treat people with love and respect and start with the fact that they are made in the image of God, regardless of if they're on the other side of the aisle or a different race or some other um, stance that they take might put me in odds with my sense of morality or whatever, but I can still treat them as a human being as made in the image of God, right? He himself is our peace. The Jew insisted, though, that a Christian should be a Jew first. This was part of the problem in the New Testament. At least a lot of the Jews did. And as you can imagine, this created a division, particularly if I was a Gentile and wanted to be part of the church. It created the haves and the have-nots. And do we not have that in the evangelical church today? If you don't have this special spiritual experience, you have. Or you have not. I mean, it's, it, there's divisions. You might remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that declared that the early church was under God's new economy in Christ. And you didn't have to follow Jewish code to be a Christian, like causes and politics or social causes, they can never sustain a community. Only the gospel can bring us at peace with one another. Here's what I notice about people that are divisive. They never think so. People that are divisive never think they're being divisive. What they think is that they are correct. 
And this gives them their perceived right to proclaim their particular mindset, right? Disunity doesn't bother them. You know why? Because division isn't their goal. The end result belies their motive. And the disconnect is that Satan gets the division and then the person thinks that they're in the right. Well, unity wasn't their goal. Disunity wasn't really their concern. But they're correct, so they're happy. Let me give you just a slight curve here on how to look at this. That the Christian's goal is not unity. I want you to hear me out here. The Christian's goal is not unity and to keep everyone happy. The Christian's goal is Christ. And in doing so, a church is fine-tuned to keep the attention on Christ and nothing else. That's what unifies. Christ provides peace for human relationships. Ephesians says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Gone are the former distinctions that have divided us. And in Christ, there is unity for groups that were formerly at odds, like the Jew and the Greek in the first century. Why is it there's still division with all this talk about race today? BLM, CRT, why? Because they're leading with the division. They're leading with race. And race is all that can be talked about. Where's Christ in all of that? We will never get to unity without Christ. Is there a problem? Yes, I acknowledge there's a problem. I just don't like that solution. It's not a political solution. But the church has to be the one to model it. So do we really have a voice to speak to the culture about unity and even about the race issues when we ourselves are not unified on the topics? We have disunity. We have to make Christ the goal, not political ideology. Notice the Christian is now called in Ephesians a new man, a new body, a church. See, the rules and the regulations with the Jews put up a fence. But in Christ, those boundaries are removed. Love and unity and fellowship are now enjoyed. You know what I find about unity? It is so dang hard. If you think it's easy, you don't know what unity is. Okay? Let, let me ask you a question. How many of you think marriage is easy? Yeah, right. Exactly. It's not. If you want to be unified in marriage, you've got to have talks you do not want to have. And you come to a resolution and understanding. You may not get all you want, but for the marriage to continue, there's got to be those tough conversations, right? Why is it any different in the church? You have to have the talk. You have to work through it. But frankly, some just don't have the stomach for it. They just don't. 
We can bring it up. I can let you know the difference and tell you why you're not like me. But can't we cohabitate? I mean, I do not agree with my wife on everything, right? And this may come as a shock. We differ on things, right? Politics, other things. But there's still unity. It's not perfect, but there's love. We prioritize the relationship over these secondary issues. So with the church, I'm just saying, it's going to be the same. And it's going to be really hard. Christ is the focus. And sometimes it's hard to put in place because these secondary issues are so important to us. We have to lay those down in the church to have unity. Let me ask you this. Is there a strained relationship with someone in the body of Christ? The peace of Christ demands dealing with your brother and sister, not just in setting them straight. That's not what I'm saying. But with humility, patience, and love. Humility. Saying, you know what? I'll lay this thing aside for the sake of us being unified. This is not more important than Christ. Has someone wronged you or slighted you? The peace of Christ demands that you not seek vengeance and you not just run to separation. You not just apply the silent treatment. Rather, you return kindness. Has a portion of the ministry prospered where you really labored in, but somebody else got the credit? The peace of Christ demands that you encourage and cheer those people on. You are not called to nurse and foster a wound. You are not called to freeze out others until you get what you want. You are not called to avoid others. You are called to the cross that makes one body. And you want to know my position to the cross? Face down in the dirt. I'm not demanding. And I'm certainly not hostile when I'm at the cross. I am a needy beggar. And what gives me the right to demand that others come and agree with me on all these secondary issues before I'm going to have a relationship with them? You know what that's called? That's called sin. That's called pride and arrogance. And we've all done it. We've all done it. We've done it in marriage. We've done it with other believers. But what I'm saying is, the issue is having our focus on Christ. Peace has an enemy. All right? It's not automatic. One must abide in the wonder of Christ. And it's not easy. Martin Luther said this. Next to faith, this is the highest art to be content with the calling in which God has placed in you. And then he ended it with this. I have not learned it yet. Wait a minute. Martin Luther, the reformer of the church, has not learned it yet. Still, stuff churning. I got a feeling all of us have things that are churning. They really get our juices going, right? Right? There's attempts to disrupt our peace in all 
shapes and sizes. Maybe a person who refuses to forgive you for something. Or a person that you seek their approval. They can steal your peace. Or maybe when you feel like you don't measure up, that steals your peace. Maybe when there's a moral or spiritual frustration, peace can elude you. Unconfessed sin can provide a loss of peace. No Christian can have lasting peace without Christ and what he has done for us. Seems like I've said this about 20 times in this sermon. Are you getting the point? It's the theme of the New Testament. It's what the Old Testament pointed to, Christ. And here's the thing about this kind of peace. You can have this peace in the worst of times. You can have this peace in the valley of death. Let us not allow anyone or anything to steal from us the confidence and the trust that we have in Christ from which peace is a benefit. It's not because of the strength of our will. No. It's because of the confidence and the strength and the protection that we have in Christ. Paul wrote this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Just another way to point to Christ. The last soldier to die in World War I was an American, 23-year-old Henry Gunther, a private with the American Expeditionary Force in France. He was killed at 10.59 a.m., November 11th, 1918, one minute before the armistice, the, the agreement to have the ceasefire go into effect. The Germans were aware that the war was over, but Gunther's squad, part of the 79th Infantry Division, encountered a group of Germans with machine guns along a road in France. And against the order of his sergeant, Gunther charged the guns with his bayonet. The German soldiers actually tried to wave him off. But Gunther kept coming. And you know what happened. He was gunned down. His divisional record states this. Almost as he fell, the gunfire died away, and an appalling silence prevailed. End quote. Isn't that a picture of some of us today? Peace has been declared, but some are continuing to fight. Sadly, some people in the body of Christ still insist on being at war. Let us not needlessly pick up a skirmish. Listen, I'm not unwilling to fight. All right? I will die for this being the word of God. I will die for Christ being the only way to heaven. I'm not going to die for the cardinals. I like the cardinals. Okay? I'm not going to die for the way you school your kids. I'm not going to die for what my position is on some medical issue. won't say any more. 
My point is that, and maybe it's just the older I get, the less hills I want to die on. And I think there's something biblical about that. The less fights I want to have. Not that I don't have some gumption in me. I'm willing to stand up to things that really matter. Again, I I take a marriage. How many times have you fought about something in a marriage and about an hour later, you don't even know what you fought for? You can't even remember how it originated. You just know you're fighting, right? It happens all the time. I mean, in other marriages, not in mine, but (laughs) let us not needlessly pick up a skirmish. Let's lay down our arms and enjoy the peace of Christ that has been secured for us in our families, our marriages, extended family, and especially within our church. This is to be the model of peace. I know it's hard, but is it worth it? Very much so. I love the relationships here. I love the people that are willing to do that hard work. And there's something about when you go through a difficult conversation, a difficult time together. You know what it does? It further brings you together. It emboldens you to one another. But when I separate and I sever, I never really learn the lesson that peace and unity can give me in that. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the peace that we can enjoy. Let's pray.